It's September 22nd, 1969, and a cool evening wind blows through the trees in the west coast city of Geraldton, Australia. It's a Monday, but there are plenty of young people out socializing, unwilling to wait for the weekend to have a bit of fun. Amongst them is 20-year-old Anne Zappelli. She's been in town for the last five days, taking exams related to her job in the post office. But that's not her only reason for making the journey. Anne is also competing in the regional judging stage for the Miss Australia pageant. Tonight, though, she wants to forget about her studies and the competition. She and her roommate are out on a double date. Anne's suitor is a young police constable called Graham Batt, and her flatmate's date is local schoolteacher Roy Ryan. The four of them have decided to head to the nearby suburb of Wanthella to watch a movie at the Oasis Drive-In. The feature film tonight is Counterpoint, starring Charlton Heston and Leslie Nielsen. They arrive late and the movie has already started. The sweet, buttery scent of popcorn fills the car's interior as they crunch through the large buckets they bought at the concession stand. Around 11 o'clock, Anne tells the others she's tired and doesn't want to watch the rest. Her plan is to walk the couple of miles back into town. Her friends aren't happy about letting her go alone, but she tells them she'll be fine and hops out, picking her way through rows of packed cars and out onto the main road. The sun has long since set, and her white woolen dress becomes no more than a pale smudge in the distance. She's not from around here, so she sticks to the highway, feet kicking up gravel along the edge of the road as she double-times it through the darkness. She is spotted a little over a kilometer down the road by a passing motorist, but she's not alone. A car has pulled over and the motorist sees two men get out. One is tall and walks with a limp, while the other is much shorter. The driver continues their journey towards Geraldton, not realizing that they are the last witness to see Anne alive. Back at the Oasis drive-in, the movie has ended and Anne's roommate, along with Graham Batten, Roy Ryan, drive back into town. They half expect to see Anne strolling along the side of the road, but there's no sign of her. They head to the motel where she's staying and start to worry when she's not in her room. They decide to roam the streets, wondering if she'd somehow gotten lost but can't find her anywhere. At 8.30 the next morning, they report Anne missing to the police, and a search of the local area begins. Officers scour the stretch of highway where she was last seen. The best case scenario is that she'd gotten lost, but there are so many worst fates that could have befallen a young woman walking alone at night. Try as they might, there's no sign of her, and it appears that the young beauty queen has vanished without a trace. It will be almost 20 years before a dying man claims to know exactly what happened to Anne. But even then, it may not be enough to give her family the closure they've craved all these years. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Thomas Craig, 
of the deathbed confession that may connect him to a crime that shocked the small Australian town of Geraldton. About a beauty queen, brutally murdered and discarded by the roadside. A pair of prime suspects who fled town the night it happened. The catastrophic sequence of events in the investigation that let someone get away with murder for decades. And the remarkable confession of a dying man that could finally give a grieving community closure. I'm Estefania Haikman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Anne Zappelli was born in May 1949 into a post-war Australia that was rapidly changing. Anne is the middle child of the family, nestled between her younger sister Rhonda and older brother Colin. They live in the town of Moroa, 400 kilometers north of state capital, Perth. It's a happy small town upbringing for the three children. When Anne leaves school, she gets a job as a telephonist with the local post office but she has dreams that stretch out far wider than her hometown. In 1969, aged 20, Anne enters the Miss Australia pageant. She has to work her way through a regional round to reach the main event. And as part of her efforts, she raises almost $1,600 for charity, equivalent to two months wages. Hers is a life full of promise, but when she disappears on the lonely stretch of highway outside Geraldton, her loved ones and police fear it may have come to an abrupt end. Their worst fears are confirmed two days into the search, when they eventually find her body a kilometer and a half from the drive-in, around 50 yards back from the highway. She has been battered unconscious, raped, then strangled with her own tights. What started as a missing persons case has just become a murder investigation. The lead officer is Detective John Porter. He and his men waste no time canvassing for witnesses. Amongst those who come forward is the motorist who saw Anne walking along the highway on the night she disappeared. Despite having their description of the two men, Right down to one of them having a limp, there are those in Geraldton whose suspicions fall on the boys who accompanied Anne and her flatmate to the drive-in, Graham Batt and Roy Ryan. Had there been some kind of argument or falling out at the drive-in? Why else would Anne choose to walk a route she was unfamiliar with at that late hour? Detective Porter, however, quickly discounts them and focuses his attention on the pair of mystery men witnesses spotted by the highway. As is often the case in small towns, it isn't hard to match the description to two local men. Thomas Craig and Norm Raisbeck are a duo known only too well to local police from previous run-ins. They live in a house only a kilometer away from where Anne's body was found, and the car they share matches the description of the vehicle seen pulling up behind Anne. Raysbeck is the taller of the two and walks with a limp. Craig is far shorter, but even more telling than the physical likeness is the fact he has a history of abuse towards women. There have been other accusations made against him over the years. Most of the time, he manages to somehow wiggle out of it, 
There was one occasion when he wasn't so lucky, though. In 1967, he was convicted of assaulting a young female neighbor with a hammer and sentenced to two years in prison. Tragically, even though she survived the attack, she died by suicide shortly before he was released. From what they know of their violent history, plus the descriptions they have from witnesses, the police feel confident that Craig and Raysbeck are the men they're looking for. But when Detective Porter sends officers to pick them up for questioning, they find they're too late. Raysbeck and Craig fled town the very same night that Anne was killed, disappearing in the car that witnesses claim to have seen. For all its major cities, Australia has thousands of miles of remote outback that a pair like Raysbeck and Craig could disappear into and stay hidden indefinitely. Could it be that the investigation into Anne's murder has hit a dead end before it's even begun? With no suspects to question in the hours following the discovery of Anne's body, police set about processing the crime scene. Right from the start, mistakes are made. Photographs taken at the crime scene are incorrectly labeled and misplaced. Around the area where the body was found, both shoe prints and tire tracks are clearly visible. But no imprints of either are taken for later comparison. Fingernail scrapings and swabs taken from Anne's body go missing before they can be tested. Of course, none of these missteps are made public at the time. As far as the people of Geraldton are concerned, the case will be solved as soon as Craig and Raysback are tracked down. Detective Porter readies himself for a long, drawn-out manhunt, but he needn't have worried. The pair are spotted four days later in Adelaide, a city 3,000 miles to the east. It's another nine days until Detective Porter flies out to question them on October 5th. He confiscates the clothes they were wearing the night of the murder. Incredibly, these two are promptly lost before they can be examined. The car they fled town in is there too, but Porter doesn't order any forensic examination. Not that it would yield much because in addition to all of the shortcomings so far, Anne's own fingerprints were never taken. So even if her prints were inside the car, Police have no way of confirming they belong to her. Porter decides to take the two men into custody and locks them up in a cell that has been bugged, hoping the two would panic and talk about the murder. Raysbeck and Craig sit there for hours and don't say a single incriminating word. What's more, Raysbeck's girlfriend comes forward to say that he and Craig had left town hours before Anne went missing. As alibis go, it's shaky, but Raysbeck and Craig add to it. They tell Porter the reason they skipped town is because they'd committed several burglaries that night. They would later be extradited back west to face charges for these, but as far as Anne's murder is concerned, Detective Porter takes their alibi at face value and dismisses them as suspects. To the surprise of many, the pair walk free although both are sentenced to short prison sentences for the burglaries they'd admitted to. For Anne's family, it's a bitter blow. They, like most of Geraldton, thought the police had the right men. Now that Raysbeck and Craig are no longer under the microscope, the investigation, such as it is, slows to a standstill. 
But though they may no longer be the main suspects, it won't be the last time that Craig and Raisbeck's names surface in relation to the case. Not by a long shot. In 1970, Detective Porter is contacted by the prison in which Thomas Craig is serving his sentence. An inmate has come forward with an alarming claim. He says that Craig bragged to him about killing Anne, but Porter isn't prepared to accept the word of another convict and dismisses it. Craig and Raisbeck get out in 1971, and Craig goes to stay in Perth with a friend and former associate, Andy Preeti, and his wife, Kay. One night, the trio head out for drinks at a local bar. There, they meet a young woman and invite her back to continue the party after the bar closes. But things quickly take a dark turn. While Kay is in the kitchen, she hears screams coming from the lounge. She runs in to find Craig with his hands around the woman's throat. Equally as shocking as what Kay sees is that she claims to hear him say, I'll strangle you like I did to Anne Zapelli with pantyhose. Kay screams for her husband, and Andy bursts into the room. Craig lets the woman go, and Andy chases him out of the house and down the street. Craig is too quick and disappears into the darkness. When Andy gets back home, the poor young woman is so traumatized by what has just happened that she begs the Preeties not to report it to the police. They oblige, and Craig is allowed to slip under the radar of police yet again. It's another four years before Craig resurfaces in 1976. This time, it's in the town of Busselton in southwest Australia. 16-year-old Kate Edwards is hitchhiking home along a quiet stretch of road. She's only seen a handful of vehicles go by in the past few hours. It's all quiet, save for her own footsteps and the chirping of cicadas. Somewhere in the distance behind her, she hears the rumble of an engine. She looks around and sees the driver slowing down, pulling over and rolling down their window. She recognizes the face. It's Tom Craig, a man she's seen around town on and off for a while now. He offers her a lift back and she takes him up on the offer, not giving it a second thought. It's a far more appealing option than to keep trudging down the highway in the heat. They haven't traveled far when Craig pulls over. He tells Kate he'll just be a minute. He needs to get something from the back of his car to find out where he needs to head after he drops her off. She wonders if he's looking for a map. The next thing she knows, he's by her side of the car yanking her door open. She catches a brief glimpse of a piece of wood in his hand, but doesn't have time to react before he attacks. Craig doesn't say a word. He just starts battering her head with a makeshift weapon over and over. Kate cowers trying to protect her head, but he's too strong, too fast. Despite the ferocity of the attack, he still doesn't make a sound. Trapped in the car, Kate tries the only thing she can. She begs for her life. She pleads with Craig, telling him if he stops that she won't tell anyone. She'll stay quiet and be his friend if he'll just stop hitting her. Incredibly, her words get through to him. Craig suddenly stops, leaving a dazed Kate trying to catch her breath. Craig walks back around to the driver's side, climbs in, and drives Kate the rest of the way home, almost as if nothing has happened. 
Kate is still on high alert as she gets out of the car and runs inside. As soon as Craig drives off, she calls the police and Craig is arrested and charged with assault and attempted murder. He stands trial the same year. The jury is not allowed to hear details of his previous convictions, including the 1967 assault of the young woman with a hammer for which he'd served two years. They do, however, hear Kate's firsthand account of her alleged ordeal. Despite how harrowing it sounds though, the jury find Craig not guilty. In an interview she'll give later, Kate calls him the Teflon man, somebody nothing seems to stick to. Craig walks away a free man once again and drops off the radar. In all this time since Anne's murder, there's been no sign of his partner in crime, Norm Raisbeck. But in a few short years, that's about to change. It's 1980. Eleven years have passed since Anne's death, when a new lead in the case comes out of the blue. A talk show on a radio station in Perth receives an intriguing call from a man who refuses to give his name. We did something terrible, the man says. How terrible, asks the host of the show. It's Geraldton. It's, it's a country town, the caller says. I don't think murder is a light charge. The call ends abruptly without any clue as to the man's identity. Police are contacted and the mention of a murder in Geraldton rings alarm bells immediately. They suspect it's a man who hasn't been seen or heard from in quite some time, Norm Raisbeck. A nationwide alert is issued to track him down. The plan is to find him and offer him immunity if he agrees to testify against his partner in crime, Thomas Craig. Finding a man who has strayed off the radar for this long is no easy task. As it turns out though, that isn't the hardest part. The biggest stumbling block is about to be presented by someone within their own ranks. John Porter had been detective sergeant back in 1969 when he led the investigation originally. Since then, he has risen up fast through the ranks and is now deputy commissioner. Around the time of the anonymous call to the radio show, he's slated to become police commissioner, the most senior position in the force. There's a lot on the line for Porter, and it's possible that he doesn't want anything to hinder his imminent promotion. So he calls Detective Ronald Whitmore, the man leading the nationwide hunt for Raisbeck, into his office. Whitmore had been in the courtroom the day Thomas Craig was found not guilty of attempting to murder Kate Edwards, and is eager to use Raisbeck as a stepping stone to finally put the man he believes has evaded justice for years behind bars. But according to other officers, Porter tells him in no uncertain terms to cease any further inquiries, as the case had already been thoroughly investigated by Porter himself back in 1969. Could it be that Porter genuinely believed he had done everything he could have back when he was a detective sergeant? Or was he more concerned with what reopening a botched investigation would do to his career? Unfortunately, Whitmore doesn't have the power or seniority to question his superior. He follows orders and puts the hunt for race back on ice. A year later, Porter gets the promotion he'd been chasing and is named police commissioner. During his four-year stint at the top, there is no more talk of Craig, Raysbeck, and what happened in Geraldton. 
he retires from the force in 1985. And it's three years later with Porter out of the picture that police catch what they hope will be their biggest break in the case so far, in the form of a deathbed confession. In 1988, police finally track down the elusive Norm Raisbeck. Time has not been kind to him. They find him in a hospital in Adelaide. Raisbeck is seriously ill, although the exact nature of his condition isn't disclosed. Two detectives drag chairs across to Raisbeck's bedside. He's too weak to even sit up, but he has enough strength and presence of mind that they're happy to go ahead with their questions. Unlike his interview with them back in 1969, this time he tells them everything. Raisbeck tells detectives how he and Craig had been cruising the streets when they spotted Anne on the side of the road. The two men didn't hesitate to pull over, although whether they did so with the intent of actually killing her, he doesn't say. Norm, did you have sex with the girl? The officers ask, as he relives that night 19 years ago. Yes, he replies, shortened to the point. Raysbeck describes in chilling detail how he had raped Anne first, then returned to the car, leaving Craig and a sobbing Anne behind. And Tommy? They ask, referring to Thomas Craig. Yeah, he replies. He had her in a headlock. Shortly after, Raysbeck claims to have seen Craig dragging her away from the poorly lit highway into the tree line. As for motive... He tells them it was very much a spur-of-the-moment decision to attack her, although there was an element of jealousy. Raysbeck tells them that, in fact, Craig had already met Anne before that night. He had even gone as far as to asking her on a date earlier that week and hadn't taken kindly to rejection when she picked Graham Bat rather than him. Raysbeck describes the scratches on Craig's face when he eventually returned to the car along with what looked like spots of blood on his clothes. They had agreed there and then that they needed to leave town and settled on Adelaide as their destination. Detectives ask Raysbeck to confirm that everything he told them is the truth. He replies that it is. The officers frantically scribble down notes capturing every last detail and share an excited look between them. After 19 years they might finally have their man. But their celebrations will prove to be premature. There have been a procession of glaring errors throughout the investigation, and possibly the biggest yet is just about to hit home. Any notion they have of calling Raysbeck to the stand to testify against Craig is short-lived. A month after their first visit to his hospital bed, Raysbeck dies, and it's only now that a fundamental error is spotted within his deathbed confession. While Raysbeck's account of what happened to Anne left them with no doubt that Craig is the man who killed her, the two detectives made one crucial error. They took copious notes at his bedside, but perhaps in their eagerness to get as much information from him as possible, they never recorded these as a formal sworn statement. As a result, nothing Norm Raysbeck said on his deathbed is admissible in a court of law. It's a hammer blow to the case 
and something that is sure to infuriate and devastate the Zappelli family. Perhaps as a result, police decide not to share the existence of the botched confession with Anne's family. Once again, due to police error, the investigation grinds to a halt. It's another six years before the family becomes aware that Ray Speck's deathbed confession even exists. Anne's sister Rhonda is understandably furious and demands an inquiry into not only what looks like subterfuge by the police, but the continued bungling of the investigation. She finally gets her wish in 1996, when an internal police investigation takes place. One of the most significant people they'd like to speak to is retired police commissioner John Porter. Detectives want to understand what went wrong with the original investigation and why Porter chose to close down the manhunt for Racebeck. In what some see as a telling move, Porter refuses to be interviewed. Internal affairs detective Mike O'Halloran will later tell an interviewer why he thought Porter stayed silent. His reputation, says O'Halloran. He had his reputation to consider. While the errors made back in the day are plain to see, there just isn't enough evidence to reopen the case against Craig. And Porter's silence plays a big part in the outcome of the internal review being inconclusive. It's a move that adds insult to injury for Anne's family, but Rhonda Zappelli is as determined as ever to continue her campaign for justice. In 2001, five years after the unsuccessful police investigation, her perseverance is rewarded. The state coroner agrees to do an independent review of the case and all available evidence to see if sufficient grounds can be found to go after Thomas Craig. One thing that becomes immediately obvious is the extent to which the investigation was poorly handled. At the time of Anne's death, over 80 pieces of key evidence were cataloged. Attempts to examine and test them now, over three decades later, reveal that over half have been lost or destroyed over the years. Police blame a combination of misfiling and moving premises. On March 26, 2001, State Coroner Alistair Hope delivers the verdict. Regardless of what Rhonda or the police may believe, there is simply not enough evidence to bring Thomas Craig to trial. Hope goes on to say, however, that Craig and Raysbeck should never have been excluded as suspects from the original investigation. It's little consolation to Rhonda, who now, for the first time since Anne died, is faced with the very real prospect that her sister's killer will never be punished. In what feels like a slap across the face after the inquest, Craig reaches out to Rhonda, offering to meet her to tell his side of the story. It's an offer that Rhonda immediately declines. The Zappelli family are left to deal with a fresh wave of frustration and grief. And Thomas Craig is allowed once again to continue to live as a free man. Anne's murder remains a tragic unsolved case, one that could have and should have been solved. In 2012, Australia's Channel 7 News runs a special on the murder of Anne Zappelli. In it, the frustration and disbelief is still evident within the Zappelli family. Anne's brother Colin lays the blame squarely on the shoulders of police, specifically John Porter. Porter, now aged 89, 
once again refuses to be interviewed. His second-in-command on the case, Roy Stewart, steps up and agrees to speak on camera to reporter Ronnie Sadler. Is there anything in relation to the investigation that you'd wish you'd done differently? She asks him. Nope, Stewart replies. Are you happy with the way things went? Exactly, he says. Sadler goes on to quiz him about all the gaps and shortcomings in more detail. When she asks him about the fact that Anne's prints weren't taken, it's the closest he'll come to admitting any of the police's alleged failings. That was a mistake, he says simply. Stewart reaches the limits of his patience, though, when Sadler asks him whether there was a cover-up. What are you suggesting? He asks, holding her gaze for a few seconds before ending the interview. The unexpected bonus for the Channel 7 team is that they managed to track down Thomas Craig. He's working for the Uniting Church in Bunbury, emptying bins full of charitable donations. 42 years after Anne Zappelli was found in the scrubland off the highway, the prime suspect is confronted in a car park by Sadler and her cameraman. Mr. Craig, did you have a pattern of violence towards women? She asks him. Craig scowls at her, but doesn't stop hauling garbage bags into his trailer. None, he says. But didn't you have a conviction in 67 for attacking a woman with a hammer? Asks Sadler. Yes, it wasn't me though. You were wrongly convicted? That's right. So all of these people are telling lies. Yes, now go away, that's enough. Craig snaps, threatening to lodge a complaint for harassment. Craig himself dies several years later, ending any chance of getting a confession from the man himself. There is, however, perhaps one final twist left to come. Channel 7 reruns the feature in 2021, following which Western Australia police reach out to the Zappelli family to tell them they plan to use new DNA testing techniques to re-examine Anne's dress, one of the few items that was not lost. They give no timeframes, however, so when the results will be made public is anyone's guess. Ronnie Sadler's 2012 feature includes an interview with Anne's brother, Colin. I've got a photo of Anne in the house, he says. His voice is thick with emotion even now after all these years. I look at it every day. It brings back memories. And you're reminded that someone still hasn't been punished for that. His pain is understandable. After 9,000 interviews and three separate investigations into Anne's murder, the case remains unsolved. But maybe, just maybe, even with both suspects dead, Anne might get the justice she deserves one day soon. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. Emile Zola was one of France's most celebrated writers, yet his name always carried controversy. He was unafraid to write about society's taboos and to challenge the laws of the government. However, Zola put his life at risk when he became publicly involved in the infamous Dreyfus Affair and defended the persecuted Jewish captain by writing an open letter to the president. 
the bold action led to a violent witch hunt against Zola, and his life was put in mortal danger. Then, just four years after the letter was published, Zola was found dead in his Parisian house, allegedly killed by carbon monoxide. But in 1957, a newspaper published a deathbed confession from a man who claimed to be responsible for Zola's mysterious death. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Nicole Edmonds, supervising producer Jane O, sound designed by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 